Before you go, I have a question for you. Of course. What is the truth? We place faith in ourselves. We see the world the way it really is, and hope that one day all mankind might see the same. What is the world, then? An illusion. One which we can either submit to, as most do, or transcend. What is it to transcend? To recognize nothing is true and everything is permitted. That laws arise not from divinity but reason. I understand now that our creed does not command us to be free. It commands us to be wise. Ready to embrace the Assassin's Creed? Or your own version of the Assassin's Creed? Where ardent, creative light flows from the experience of divine wisdom and the breaking of those mind-forged manacles William Blake wrote about. Well, you came to the right frackin' place. And it's no accident. It's all fun and games until someone loses a third eye. And then it's just gnosis. I mean... Odin had to give his right eye to Mimir to experience Sophia. What are you prepared to sacrifice? Let's find out. But first, that fun and games. Fuck you! And fuck the establishment! Happy heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. As always and forever. Spastomy! Stay on Bite Gnostic Radio. An initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week, I commandeer your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. This is where you write your own gospel and live your own myth. Adopt your personal Assassin's Creed and see the whole of the moon. Shine on you crazy diamonds down on Fascination Street. All this, all these wonders of art, design, human ingenuity, all utterly meaningless in the face of the only question that matters. Where do it come from? As always and forever, I am your host, Miguel Connor. Sci-fi hack, garage philosopher, recovering addict, polarized bipolar, and naughty pescatarian. And a lot of other meat sack aspects, but in the end, as Simon Mega said, thou and I are but one. I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me! And together, we are those veterans of a thousand psychic wars, breaking down the black iron prison, one arc on created hallucination at a time. Well, it's not really a measure of mental health to be well-adjusted in a society that's very sick. Believe me, the sooner we're off the planet, the better. 
one individual has been a chief samurai against these hallucinations, as well as a chief dispenser of Gnostic wisdom in the last generation, is the wonderful Tobias Churton. And yes, Tobias materializes at the virtual Alexandria again to discuss the secret influence of Eastern mysticism on magic and the occult. Based on his new book, Alistair Crowley in India. As with past interviews, you know we'll be covering a lot of Gnosticism, including the parallels of Gnosticism at Eastern religious traditions. You know it for the love of God, Montresor. We'll cut the vocal cords of every empowered speaker. We'll yank the social symbols through the looking glass with the value society's currency. To confront the familiar. Another stellar interview from Tobias, and I'll briefly cover the similarities between Buddhism and Gnosticism. Right here, right now, Jesus Jones. First, I'll quote from Stefan Heller's seminal book, Gnosticism, where he reveals several specific features that join Gnosticism and Hinduism. Here they are. One is the teaching regarding the presence of the divine in the human spirit. The Atman is identical with Brahman, which means that the universal divinity is present in miniature within each person. Similarly, in Gnosticism, the Neuma is a spark sprung from the divine flame. And by knowing the Neuma, the Gnostic automatically knows the spiritual source from whence it has come. The Hindu and the Gnostic would agree that to know one's deepest self is tantamount to knowing God. I am an immortal. You're not a god. You can take my word for it. This is 12 years of Catholic school talking. Well, maybe the real god uses tricks. You know, maybe he's not omnipotent. He's just been around so long. He knows everything. Second, both Gnosticism and Hinduism recognize the existence of many divine beings in realms between the ultimate and the material dimensions. Hinduism is the paramount polytheistic religion in the world today, whereas Gnosticism functions within a monotheistic matrix. But Gnosticism can hardly be called a monotheistic religion, pure and simple. Moreover, some of the Vedic deities of Hinduism, such as Indra or Prajapati, have similar qualities to the Gnostic Demiurge. Slugs! Slugs! He created slugs! They can't hear, they can't speak, they can't operate machinery. I mean, are we not in the hands of a lunatic? Third, Hindu teachings have much to say about what constitutes duality, Vaita, and what is non-dual, Advaita. While Gnosticism is often described as dualistic, its view of both of these categories is actually comparable to the Hindu. Thus, in the realm of what Hinduism calls Maya, illusory manifestation, duality prevails and the struggle of light and dark takes place. While on the plane of ultimate reality, there is a fullness of being comparable to what is known to the Gnostics as the Pleroma. 
It's not a place like heaven. It's not something that's not here. It is here in the middle of the turmoil, what's called samsara, the whirlpool of life conditions. The, that nirvana is what? It is the condition that comes when you are not compelled by desire or by fear or by social commitments. Moving to Buddhism, recently Fadi Riyad, past guest and author of the excellent The Gospel of Lie, shared some of his research at the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group. He wrote, In the Pali Canon, Buddhism includes the concept of reborn gods. According to this theory, Periodically, the physical world system ends and beings of that world system are reborn as gods in lower heavens. This too ends, according to Buddhist cosmology, and God Mahabrahma is then born, who is alone. He longs for the presence of others and the other gods are reborn as his ministers and companions. Mahabrahma then forgets his past lives and falsely believes himself to be the creator, maker, all-seeing, the Lord. This is his development build, sealed off so he can control it. He keeps it offline so the custom code he's written can't be detected and deleted. Mm, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a bubble universe ruled by an asshole god. Nice work, Fadi. And, as many of you already know, the Buddhist god Mara is a dead ringer for the fierce demiurge of the Sethian Gnostics. You shall know that God is God and bow down to his will. Going back to Heller's book, it provides the similarities between Gnosticism and Buddhism. Heller writes that, quote, the objective of Buddhism is identical with the ultimate aim of Gnosticism, which is liberation meaning freedom from embodied existence and thereby from all future suffering. The Bodhisattva ideal and other modifying teachings are only elaborations of this basic teaching. As long as the Matrix exists, the human race will never be free. Furthermore, Heller presents the list of points of convergence between Gnosticism and Buddhism specifically Mahayana Buddhism, based on statements of Buddhist scholar Edward Conzi. Heller writes, Salvation is achieved through Gnosis, or Jnanen Buddhism, insight into the dependent origination of manifest existence is what liberates. Ignorance is the true root of evil. In Gnosticism, it is called agnosis, and in Buddhism, avidya. Both Gnostic and Buddhist knowledge are arrived and not by ordinary means, but as the result of interior revelation. There are levels of spiritual attainment, ranging from the condition of a foolish materialist, hylitic, to that of an illumined saint, nomadic. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. In both Gnosticism and Buddhism, the feminine principle of wisdom, Sophia and Prashviya, respectively, plays an important role. 
Kanzi quotes the Hevraja Tantra. Prashviya is called mother because she gives birth to the world. There are other deities in Buddhism that may be cognate to Sophia, such as Tara and Kuan Yin. She tore a hole in our universe, a gateway to another dimension. Both Gnosticism and Buddhism show a preference for myth over fact. Christ as well as Buddha are presented as archetypal beings rather than merely historical figures. Why would he send his own son to suffer for the sins of ordinary people? Because he loves us. God made himself approachable to us, human, so we could understand it. That made no sense. Sacrificing the innocent to atone for the sins of the guilty. What kind of love is that? A tendency to antinomianism which is disregard for rules and commandments, is inherent in both systems, while at the lower rungs of the spiritual ladder, rules of behavior are considered important and even crucial. In exalted spiritual states, the importance of such rules becomes relative. Both systems are disdainful of easy popularity and aim their teachings to a spiritual elite. Hidden meanings and mysterious teachings are prevalent in both systems. Both Gnosticism and Buddhism are metaphysically monistic, which means they are to aspire to transcend the multiplicity of manifest things and achieve a condition of ultimate oneness. And beneath that darkness, there's another kind. It was, it was, it was, it was deeper, warm like a substance I could feel man. it was like I was, I was a part of everything that I ever loved and all I had to do was let go and I did and I disappeared that's all I got as I lose my third eye to wisdom my beloved true seekers let us gain much more wisdom with our interview with Tobias on his latest book, Alistair Crowley in India, Birdie Num Num. That's racist. And the empire never ended. You who go where no one else will dare. Will you be my god, architect? Finally, I have met you. You will not rebuild your house again. But I am your house, and you live in me, O Lord of my own ego. You are pure illusion. You do not exist. The earth is my witness. That's racist. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, as always, we have the pleasure of having Tobias Churton, this time to discuss his latest book, Alistair Crowley in India, The Secret Influence of Eastern Mysticism on Magic and the Occult. How you doing, Tobias? And thanks for joining us once again. 
It's nice to be a thought criminal again. <laughs> Indeed, yes, for the audience, we were having a pre-interview conversation on the the wonderful impact sarcasm of political correctness on our society. What did you say, Tobias? It's what? Uh, an attack on the self? I was quoting Peter Whitehead, the late British filmmaker, who said it was a violation of the self. A hundred percent true. Agreed then and agree now. And with us also, we have somebody who is no friend of political correctness, and that is the Moondog Vance. How are you doing, Vance? Oh, I'm fine, and as usual, politically free and not <laughs> correct. <laughs> so I'm looking forward, uh, Tobias, to hearing all about the things about Alistair that we don't know. You're so good at exposing the truth about what's going on about Alistair Crowley. From the Gnostic perspective, Tobias, and let me know your thoughts. We are the aliens. We will not, we will never belong on this earth as a species, although from the Hermetic perspectives, we are that great place where the divine and the animal meet. So we must be the caretakers of the cosmos. What do you think of us as humans? What do you mean, every individual or some, some people or? As a species, do we really belong or? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of our species are perfectly happy wallowing in the shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very gnostic and well said. <laughs> you know, it's an it's an achievement of consciousness to differentiate yourself uh, fundamentally from the workings of nature. I mean, the, the the radical and revolutionary event that occurred, according to Hans Jonas, the way he put it to me all those years ago, the Alter Meister of Gnostic studies. He, he said the Gnostic uh, experience was the first time in history, a historical event, because man feels the rift between his essential nature and nature itself has become utterly extreme. It's not that man's just remote. He's, he's actually other than the natural world. And that's why Gnosticism used to be described as a, a radical dualism. I'm not sure that was a message that the, the 60s, um, spiritual explosion wanted to accept in its radical fullness. I think people today want a spirituality which embraces a kind of a deal with nature. Uh, and which is more, which is why hermeticism, the hermetic vision is a bit more popular because there is a, a great deal of understanding of the beauty of the universe. But man can play the bridge role in raising nature to even a higher level, which is, I think, a much more positive view than that of, of, of nature rejection, which you fundamentally have in Buddhism, though they don't talk about it directly. But basically, it's a rejection of the processes of life in Buddhism. Uh, and there's a bit of that in the, in, the, in the spectrum of the Gnostic tradition. We were just talking before the interview on uh, Mel Brooks's wonderful movie, The Producers, as well as his other films like Blazing Saddles. Since we were talking about movies, what was the last good movie you've seen, Tobias? Or do, are you no longer even bother with movies? I haven't seen a really good movie in quite a, quite a few years. I mean, I really enjoyed um, uh, the one with Jet Black about the the rock and roll school. Oh, yeah, I forgot the name of it. That was fun. Yeah, that was yeah. a good comedy. I think America in the early 2000s was producing some really great comedies, really good. And uh, I love Dodgeball, my, probably my favorite movie the last 25 years. <laughs> that was fun. 
I adore, I adore that. I haven't seen anything that sort of affected me, you know, spiritually or uh, with such acting that I was bowled over and led to realize some actor had some great key. No, I'm, I, I, uh, I can't think of, I saw an Egyptian film a few years ago that was really good called the Yakubian building. That was made about 2010-ish. That was very, very good, very, very interesting film, uh, I thought. Uh, but no, I, I think the movies are really awful. I mean, I've got a collection of about 300 DVDs at home, and, and it kind of peters out in the late 70s, early 80s, is when the, something starts to disappear from the movies. Uh, a, a degree of humanity, uh, art, um, spirituality, intelligence, humor, it all starts to go. But if I say this, it sounds like I'm just an old fart, you know, moaning about things are different to when I was young. <laughs> I, I mean, my, my, my father, I used to talk to him. He, he saw a lot of good in the 1930s, but there's supposed to not be any good in the thirties. They will say, Oh, rise of fascism as if that was the only thing, the depression, uh, the great depression. And that's all you hear. But in fact, he, he, he was, uh, came from very poor you know background and he um was excited about the new trains uh, new tr and technology that was going on in the 30s which was also very positive you know had it had an energy which it, uh, was vibrant anyway the point is 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 we we can we're all stuck in our time and i my i think i was hugely lucky to grow up as a child in the 60s and hugely unlucky to, to find all of that a fabulous energy on a declining curve from the 70s onwards and i'm interested in how and why that happened where where did all that explosive wonder go it, of course it wasn't all great it wasn't but as a child there was plenty to get you um into a kind of awareness if you had you know if you had the antenna antennae up there's a sort of general sort of cynicism and darkness and uh, all that. And, you know, the, the, the artists that are left alive aren't. I mean, I was amazed Paul McCartney's last album got to number one, I think, in America. And, really? And it was, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. yeah. And, you know, I listened to it and I thought it was you know, it's all right, but absolutely nothing special. So there does seem. I remember there was a phrase. Of the rabbis in uh, Israel about the time of Jesus, I think I don't, whether it was Gamaliel, the famous rabbi who taught St. Paul and, and Josephus, it may have been another one, but he said that the dew of inspiration falls not upon our lips, meaning at that time in the first century that the prophetic tradition, the great prophets, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Micah and all the rest of it, that they, they, they didn't seem to be that level of inspiration and there was a kind of dryness in the first century um but then jesus appears and so something happens although he's rejected as, as you know by some of his some of his own people um but uh today i feel the same that you know the dew of inspiration falls not on many lips um i think it is falling on people it's falling on me i'm producing some of the best music i've done in my life and i'm 59 i'm not 19 anymore uh, I'm producing some of the best writing I've ever produced. They they say, you know, if you produce your best stuff when you're young. I don't think that's true at all. Certainly not in my case. So there are people who are getting in tremendous levels of inspiration, but they're not getting the outlet that they need 
because of the puerility and narrow-mindedness of the 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 people who have taken over the media in England, for example, the television has been taken over by journalism and advertising. Well, in America, it was pretty well advertising anyway, um, but various mavericks got through it. But there's been a, de- a declension of intelligent genius. I think uh, creative accounting, of course, is going through a golden age as ever. But uh, yeah, for in terms of sheer creativity, uh, the magic of life, the wonder, uh, inventiveness, great storytelling, um, real knowledge. People don't read, you see. This is the problem is that half the trouble is they, they read from a very exactly. narrow, band, narrow band of books and stuff. And people are afraid, but they've always been afraid. So, yeah, more. This is why I love your radio station, because you, you don't mind putting your fist through the glass. No, indeed, somebody has to, us independent podcasters and media entities. And, of course, I would agree with you in everything you said, but why don't we get to your book, which deals with somebody who is very politically incorrect and whose message might be as important as ever, and that's Aleister Crowley. The thing that stuck me, Tobias, is uh, you've written books about Crowley in America, in Germany, and now in Indian, I'm thinking, wow, that, that Crowley, <laughs> he's like the Tintin of the occult. He's just right. everywhere. <laughs> right. You've got that. That is exactly what was in my mind when I gave these titles to books. We, uh, Alistair Crowley in India, Alistair Crowley in America, Alistair Crowley, you know, and I've got another one lined up uh, uh, that I've yet to write. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but... Uh, and the, the other one was called The Beast in Berlin. I, it should have been Alistair Crowley in Germany. and then it would, But yes, it, <laughs> I, I was very much thinking of Tintin in America, Tintin in the Congo, <laughs> Tintin in the land of the Soviets. Uh, tin, you know, this idea of taking a character and putting them in a completely different cultural experience and seeing what happens to a, to, to, to a kind of prismatic personality like that. Yes, that's what I wanted to show, that the adventures of not Tintin, the adventures of Alistair Crowley. And I think presenting Crowley as an adventurer of both the Earth, the planet explorer, but also of consciousness, of the mind, uh, the world of the spirit and of the psyche, that's way that's exactly how he should be presented. He is the Tintin of the occult. Yeah, nicely put, Miguel. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a big fan of Tintin as a kid. But yeah, and you're right. I mean, when I read uh, your books, I I learn so much about why Crowley reacted, why he evolved. And of course, like you said, everything in his life, his biggest thrust was really trying to make contact with the other world. That's what his, his foremost interested. And it's admirable that a human being would spend pretty much every waking life doing these things, despite his shortcomings, which we all have. So, and I think also he and Annie Besant should have uh, maybe opened an occult travel agency because she was also all over the world too. Quite those two characters. And I think they met in a trip to Egypt. They, they met uh, in uh, April, I think it was April or May 1904 when he left, left Egypt after receiving the book of the law. And they, they met on the ship back to France and he didn't show her the manuscripts of the Book of the Law, and probably wondered why he hadn't. Um, but I don't think she'd have she'd have liked it. I mean, she had her own perspective, and it was very different to to Crowley's uh, Annie Besant. I mean, she was uh, she was a socialist uh, basically, and he said he was a high Tory. Uh, but then again, he was a very open-minded high Tory, and certainly not a bigot. So he, I'm sure he uh, would have enjoyed the conversation. But there would have been something that probably told him, 
keep Stumm over where where he was at. And of course, later, uh, she and her followers were very uh, hostile to Crowley, who wanted to take over uh, the the Theosophical Societies. I say societies because, of course, it had split by then. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the zeitgeist of the 19th century? Obviously, in the 19th century, there was an interest in the West on Eastern traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. Why do you think this was happening? I know it's been, uh, I don't want to be reductionistic, but it's people have said it's simply the suffocating, boring Victorian age uh, paired with the English colonialism of India. Is, is that why the West got interested in uh, the East? That is like all things said in our century about the Victorian era. It shows a total lack of understanding. It's because of the Victorian era that they uh, that there was this energy of of interest and um, reaction and open mindedness. Um, it wasn't in everybody, but uh, to typify the Victorian world as just straight laced, just uh, uptight. Um, is 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 only part of the story that straight laceness and uptightness gave birth to some of the most brilliant philosophers poets scientists musicians uh and social reformers you could possibly imagine so in fact uh, the 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 repressions that went with the attempt to uh moralize the late georgian period were, were hyper creative and all the brilliant people of course whether they were in france Germany, England, or in the United States, tended to go abroad, yes, to get away from the straight-laced societies in which they came from, but they they went abroad with an open mind, encountered colonies with completely different mentalities, and brought back the best of it, and made a huge impact when they returned. So it was an immensely uh, vibrant and creative period. Um, intellectually and spiritually, for the Western world to be opened up, uh, for people like the theo- theosophists who said that we should treat Hinduism and Buddhism on a par with Christianity was absolutely revolutionary. For the, for the previous 1800 years of Christian history, anything that wasn't of the church, whether it be Catholic up until the 1500s or Catholic or Protestant, was regarded as barbaric so uh, it was a tremendous uh, experience that some people were going through at that time um and show the effect of that today is incalculable really if you think today there isn't anybody in the west seriously saying that that the world will uh, you know politically anyway i'm sure there are people who believe it but say so, you know the answer to the world's problems is that they everyone goes to church and worships Jesus Christ um, that's not a that's not a political aim nobody's saying that and we had the communists of course saying that if everyone was communist then the world would be free uh, but the com- communist uh, movement was very similar to in mentality to the inquisition of the late Catholic Church at the Reformation period you know, they're right and everybody else is wrong. And if you disagree, we'll destroy you. Uh, but there was a rebellion against that, which took many forms in the 20th century. We're now in the position in the world of, of seeing the world as a kind of supermarket of ideas 
and uh, spiritualities. And we have uh, a freedom at the moment, in, in the West anyway, uh, to indulge these, uh, th these explorations. My books are intended to enrich that search. So Alistair Crowley's pioneering engagement with India seems to me a book long overdue because his, his involvement with Indian thought and the fact that he took steps forward from the, the Theosophical Society make, make him, I think, a key figure in, in the understanding of uh, how the West might gain from encounters with, with the, the vast Hindu tradition, particularly the Hindu tradition, but also Chinese and Buddhistic uh, uh, traditions as well. I mean, he, he fashioned out of all that something really quite new, a new synthesis of East and West. And Crowley's unique in the, in, in the systematic way he went about that, even though that achievement has been decried and, and um, blackened by, criti by critics and hostile people. Yeah, I think you make a really good argument about how uh, Buddhism and Hinduism really influenced uh, much of his work. For example, you talk about how Buddhism was really sort of the fuel of him taking the Horus and the Beast personas because he'd embraced the idea that life was sort of absurd and our personalities were counterfeit. So he was just going to make a dance out of it. Yeah, it's more than that. I, th I think, I think uh, Buddhism eventually uh he embraced it to a degree but i think he found that it ultimately was in opposition to his essential vision and uh, i think by 1920 he says the buddha was cured um uh, the the universal sorrow was cured when it went out for a drink with the universal joke in other words, he, he was prepared to see a, a vision beyond the, 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 the Buddhist precepts. And it was, it, you know, he, he would never have reached that had he not reached a kind of despair through having become a Buddhist. I mean, he, when he arrives in Paris in 1900, late 1902 and there in 1903, in the book, there's a, a newspaper article about him, which has never been, ever been published before in English. Uh, he was interviewed in his flat in, in the center of Paris uh, by a famous writer, Marcel Schwab, a, a Jewish writer, a great, great, great writer, and uh, interviews him seriously as an explorer, mountaineer, but also as a spiritual seeker. And he's described plainly as a Buddhist. Um, but Buddhism took uh, Crowley to the position he wrote a, wrote a poem called Summa Spes, or the, the Sum of Hope, uh, where he's reached a point of complete aphasia, inability to what is the point of living you know where, where is the self buddhism had almost annihilated any any sense of a permanent self in the western sense and he went through that inner hell and out of out of the, the long endurance of of an intense buddhist consciousness comes this thelema which is almost like a cry from the past uh, the cry of Horus it says, you know, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. You have no, uh, the, the human existence is not, um, as relative absolutely as the Buddhist Theravada Buddhism with which he was acquainted, uh, keeps it. The, the self is not an illusion. Um, we, there is something we can do in this situation. We can, 
we can uh, maximize the con- the consciousness of our being here, not not resign ourselves to its um, its dissolution in in a negative way. Uh, so Crowley, Crowley comes up with a system that seems to both reject the ordinary world of of the unconscious and but embraces the the creative dynamic of the universe itself and puts the creative force of the universe god in the individual and that is a power that is indestructible well said tobias uh, do you think that's the essential element that distinguished Crowley from the Theosophists, or were the Theosophists kind of going for this kind of collective Buddhist-like vibe, and he counteracted with a individualistic uh, type philosophy? Yes, I do. I think, uh, from my personal uh, liking and knowledge of Theosophists today, um, I personally, and this is only my personal view, feel that they tend to embrace all kinds of um, Hindu and Buddhist philosophies as if they were all saying the same thing. And this really goes back to the period when theosophy first came to um, India in the 1880s, late 1870s, 1880s particularly, and they settled in near Madras. And uh, uh, they tended to think of the Buddhist nirvana, for example, as just another way of saying the Christian heaven. And that view became incredibly popular and still is around the Western world, that Nirvana, heaven, is all the same. And the, Edwin Arnold wrote the great poem, The Light in Asia, and basically presents Buddha as a kind of alternative Jesus, um, but with a less less um, exacting creed. And uh, Crowley, Crowley doesn't buy, buy into that um, mulge, that melching of Oriental philosophies into into a sort of George Harrison album, where there's sort of a bit of this new... <laughs> You can have a bit of that and a bit of this and a bit of the other, and 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 which is fine. You can you can live as a theosophist with with all this stuff. But of course, Crowley was a, a, a rigorous logician and academic who really wanted to get to the science of the thing. And while you can produce a sort of perfectly acceptable and and user friendly amalgam of a bit of a bit of this, a bit of Bhagavad Gita, a bit of Krishna consciousness, a bit of Buddhism, and a bit of you know the nice bits of Jesus and all the rest of it. He he was looking for the essence, and he went a lot. He he wasn't prepared to accept this uh, this easy, um, if you like, uh, epistemological compromise, uh, which so many people are tended to ex- tend to accept when they talk about the spiritual, and the spiritual sort of means well whatever you want it to mean, and uh, <laughs> and has really given this quote new age movement a sort of bad name for being unrigorous um and 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 uh, unsystematic crowley was neither unrigorous nor unsystematic but his conclusions um requ- require uh an inter- an, an intelligent uh, deformation of 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 western mores i think yeah great answer and but but tobias uh, going back to more or less again the zeitgeist in the 19th century we have to admit that Theosophy was a huge uh, influence on bringing, well, not only bringing this information from the East, but preserving it. From what I've heard, the Theosophists had to teach a lot of the Hindus, including and Indians, including Gandhi, about their own tradition that they lost because they become secular and and so forth. So we have to admit, and of course, uh, Indian independence was very much fueled by Theosophists, wasn't it? 
Yeah, and I think I make that very, very clear in the book. As you do, to, yeah. As to how much the influence of theosophy was in giving um, Hindus themselves a sense of the of the uh, dignity of their own shastras and the confidence to be able to say, well, we we have our you know our shastras are as good as your gospels. And to say it firmly, not only that, the theosophists convinced many people in the West that that was the case, and that's made a huge made a huge difference to the assumptions of of, of the imperialist enterprise. Um, and Crowley also embrace, deals with that issue also, in in very 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 interesting ways. I think he's well ahead of his time in the way he analysed the weaknesses of. Uh, the posi- various positions that Britain would take up with regard to India in the in the effort to try and maintain our our foothold there. Uh, there's a wonderful quote in the book about um, why the British had been so extraordinarily successful to gain um, governance of a of a country that they did not, contrary to popular view, they never colonised. Uh, India was not colonised. We did not send huge numbers of people out to live there and take over or anything like that. Uh, there was a small uh, civil service. I mean, today you would think it was extraordinary how vast tracts of Indian territory were run by you know one official and his assistants, um, but because they had the conf- they, they had a tremendous confidence, and they had the confidence of some of the leading people in India that they would do a great job and of course when the British came to India it was already a conquered country it had been conquered by the Mughals uh, in in by 1526 who took over the Hindu culture and uh, with an Islamic superstructure uh, so it was it wasn't like we even conquered the country in any real sense we just uh, fought against the Dutch the Portuguese and afterwards the French to maintain our trading links and in the process of that by extraordinary circumstances we eventually ended up with the the control of it and i'm sure a lot of people in india today would say some of them are the old very older ones would probably say well it was pretty good in those days you know <laughs> didn't do a bad job of it um <laughs> anyway crowley comes in at the end of that and and he was he was he was uh I think Madame Blavatsky herself, the founder of Theosophy, the co-founder, I should say, of Theosophy, she said that uh, India could have no better government than the British in the period she was there in the 1870s and 1880s. And and she was probably a Russian spy, so that's really saying something. <laughs> At the same time, wasn't there, you have all this rich information coming from India and the East to these esoteric societies in the Victorian era and further. But as you write, wasn't there always more or less a struggle at certain times, basically between, well, we should just stick to the the Hermetic and the Egyptian magic and the pagan Greek and not be sullied by the the East and some saying, no, the East is very rich. Wasn't there this struggle going on in different secret societies? Very much so. I don't know, but about a struggle um, in in quite the way you put it, but but no, no, things like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn were born out of the dissatisfaction of a lot of French and British esotericists who joined the Theosophical Society in a great hope of a liberal a liberalisation of the spiritual um, 
enterprise and that that spirituality could take science on this was the great thing could spirituality take the world of the scientists on and and show that spirituality was not simply a lot of fairy stories and and what people would like to believe but actually had a scientific aspect that it was that it it, it described things which were true about the essential nature of man and the universe and a lot the, there would never have been a golden dawn or Crowley's order or modern occultism if it hadn't have been for people saying, hey, 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 uh, Blavatsky, Olcott, uh, Ledbetter, you guys, Wedgwood, you're all saying that basically we should sort of give up Christianity and uh, embrace Hinduism, Buddhism with, you know, with a few sort of Westernish uh, scientific notions and, and, and then that'll solve the problem. And they said, but we have our own uh, spiritual traditions in the West. And this is the origin of the term Western esotericism. And they spoke about the hermetic writings, of course. They spoke about Western magic. They spoke uh, about um, mysticism, Christian mysticism. And eventually, as you know, there was this even this revival of, of, of what they thought was witchcraft. But there was this whole thing of saying, well, we don't need all right, we, we can find parity, we can find common idea, we can find universal principles in common with Oriental traditions. This is this is great. But we're not kind of in the situation of babies being spoon-fed by the East. Um, the Egyptian tradition, of course, was very important to, to a lot of people. That became uh, a cornerstone. And then there was the discovery uh, through the 20th century of indigenous spiritual traditions. But actually all of that was pretty well stimulated by the theosophical movement in the first place. So the, the theosophical movement had within it the splits of uh, the seeds of its own splits in the way that Methodism and Wesley uh, had within it the seeds of splitting into Baptists and every, every other kind of Protestant sect which pollulate across America. I mean, you know, once you set, once you set up a challenge to an existing order. Um, Methodism is a challenge to the Protestant or Anglican order. Um, the, the theosophy is a challenge to the entire Western Christian order. That, that challenge always produces then a new array, a coruscation of different um, people, some are greater or lesser inspired. And we're sort of dealing with that. Um, and living it, living it through. And the effect of that has been enormous. And you're quite right. I think the Theosophical Society has been greatly underrated in its importance in the 20th century. There are reasons for that. I think one of them is obviously the Nazi, the Nazi thing, which meant that people could no longer use the language. People forget that the swastika was once a sign of health and life and divine dynamism. The Nazis obviously turned it into a symbol of uh, un unspeakable uh, uh, wickedness and evil and depression and and you know kind of cultural hell um and the aryan too which you address in well, your book the aryan race issue well you know i've got a chapter in the book called yeah. when indians became when indians became <laughs> Aryans." Yes. and people still talk about aryans and uh and sim semites even this word anti-Semitic is just garbage. You know, it comes from uh, Bryant's book, which is simply a reading of the Old Testament that who survived the flood according to Genesis? 
you know, the sons of Noah and all the races are descended from them. Well, if you believe that, you, 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 I'd kind of say you'd believe anything. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's now been shown through anthropological studies and so on to be that is not the case. So you can't talk of Shemites, people from the descended from Shem and Hamitic races and Japhetic races, as Brian did in the 18th century. And this word Aryan is a complete nonsense. It was simply a word they found in the, um, the testimonies of Manu, who's, uh, is a legal text, Hindu legal text, which referred to the Arya, which meant, uh, highborn or aristocratic. And when the word was removed to Germany, some German philosophers noticed it was very similar to the German word Ehre, which means noble and honorable, honor particularly. Oh, they said, oh, this is great. Our original people are not Goths and uh, barbarians from the East. We Germans come from the Aryan race. And they developed this complete fiction that there was a race called the Aryans. Uh, Blavatsky's people, the Theosophists, built a great deal on this. And uh, they then made an identification of a high spiritual philosophy uh, the mysticism of the Hindus, which is, as you know, is a spectrum of beliefs. Um, and that they then said that's Aryan. And that's the origin that without that, there wouldn't have been all this, this, this terrible Nazi garbage, you know, where they managed to join nationalism to a pseudo spiritual tradition that didn't even exist. And people still believe this kind of tosh. It's, it's, but that's one of the great things of living post sixties. We can see the tosh. We can sit big. We've got more access to knowledge now. We can see that these fictions became kind of publicly accepted political nostra. Take your word in America when you arrest somebody, you say, he's Caucasian. What the hell is that? <laughs> Have you ever heard such garbage? We're from, all hey, from the Caucasus. <laughs> what, what, you're from Armenia and Georgia, you know? I mean, have you ever heard such trash? But that came out of the, uh, that came out of the, the perfectly relatively innocent race theories of, of the 19th century that they had to give a name. So the uh, Caucasian, uh, what do you mean Caucasian? What do you say? Well, we mean white, <laughs> you know? Okay. <laughs> so, right. Okay. Gotcha. So everyone is whites, Caucasian. I, it's just nonsense. We, I think genetics will reveal eventually, you know, this, this, the, the many fictions of race theory. Crowley never, ever bought into any of the Blavatskian race, root race theory. He said it, he called it bunk, root race theory bunk, because he was basically scientific. He was high. He was a Cambridge graduate, for goodness sake. who had very intelligent friends. He was an intellectual with an imagination, meaning he didn't, you know, he wasn't a dogmatic bore. And uh, he, he saw a lot of theosophical theories for what it was, which was wishful thinking. And he didn't buy into it. And Crowley really was streets ahead of, of, he looked at Blavatsky as a, as a predecessor, but certainly not as a, you know, somebody who's thought he, uh, sat at the feet of. He knew, he knew that, uh, she'd given people pretty well what they wanted at the time. I mean, she, most of her, the impression Blavatsky made in India was due to the tricks she did. You know, she produced a handkerchief with your monogram on it, you know, or, Letters would fall from the ceiling, or you'd, she'd say, "Try and lift that up," and people would try to lift up a sideboard and find they couldn't get it off the ground. And a lot of the stuff was the kind of thing you'd try to impress uh, an unscientific world with. 
And of course, you realize that she first meets Alcott d- uncovering a, a case of alleged poltergeist activity in, 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 in the eastern s- side of America. In other words, it's coming out of what they called spiritualism or Crowley called spiritism. Um, all this stuff about, you know, ghosts and uh, poltergeists and all this sort of thing. Um, out of which a vast industry has been developed, you know, and kept the cinemas filled with, whoa, what's that? <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you think she ever made it to Tibet? No. I think she made it to what was called Little Tibet, which is an area of Kashmir. But I don't think she – she didn't need to go into Tibet. She could have got all the information from friends of her uncle, uncle uh, who was a, a Russian uh, – Syri- became the foreign minister of, of Russia, uh, Vita. And he, he – he used to attend a, a Tibetan um, chemist shop in St. Petersburg, uh, which was founded by uh, friends of, of important Russian aristocrats who brought uh, Tibetan and Siberian medical uh, ideas to, to St. Petersburg in the 1850s. So she didn't need to go to Tibet. She knew about it already, uh, and but I, I don't think she'd have got in in the period. Also, there's a lot of doubt about her accounts of, of her movements in northern India when she was there. and um, But no, I, she never claimed to go to Lhasa, for example, and I think that's that's honest of her. She didn't go to Lhasa. She didn't meet the Dalai Lama. Uh, Little Tibet is actually part of Kashmir, and she would have met and encountered people who had embraced Mahayana Buddhism, and she, she read about it and wrote articles for the Russian press. There's no great mystery about uh, Madame Blavatsky, if you look at the thing with a clear, clear head. On a little detour, because of course, uh, in keeping with the theme of the show, and I'm always interested in knowing your thoughts. It's obvious, as many have uh, proposed, scholars and researchers, that there is big parallels or striking parallels between Gnosticism and certain forms of Buddhism. But in your view, do you see forms of Hinduism that certainly hearken to the ancient Gnostic dispensations? Well, certainly in terms of what um, Crowley encountered, the biggest influence on Crowley's thought came from the writings of uh, Sabapati Swami. And I deal with this in, in some detail in the book because it's terribly important. Uh, Sabapati Swami was, was, had been to a Christian school in the, he was born in about 1850. Um, he then went and studied with the Sufis and then he claimed to have met a, a, an ancient Rishi and flew to his mountain abode and was taught Janana Yoga, which is Gnostic yoga. I don't think Buddhism, funnily enough, has nearly enough, nearly as much, uh, connection with the early Gnostics the early so-called Gnosticism, if you want. But I think the early Gnostics are really getting a form, various forms of Kundalini Yoga, um, which didn't necessarily come through through a Buddhist channel. But Sabapati Swami's book, Om, on the Vedantic Raj Yoga, uh, which was published in Lahore, which was a copy uh, got Crowley read when he was in India and influences at least two of the sections of his masterpiece on magic, with a K, uh, he is very important. Now, what's fascinating about his writing, where he basically internalizes the chakra system and relates it to 
a system which is so similar to if you read Hippolytus's work and Tertullian's work of the second, third century Gnostics, even through Tertullian who were hostile and Hippolytus who was hostile to the Gnostics, you see this idea of the human being of light. If you see man as an occult body, not as a, as a physical body, but as an occult body or a being of light, then you have this idea of the crown at the center of the, at the top of the head through which the Brahma, the divine energy, uh, may enter. And then flowing through the chakras, which means wheels. Think of the wheels of Ezekiel, these wheels of energy in the human body, which in, in Sabapati Swami's view, generate the various illusions in which man is caught. Very similar to the hermetic itinerary that as you go down from heaven towards the earthy level, which in chakra terms is, is the Muladhara uh, Svaditana uh, chakras, at the, which is around the your bottom. Uh, as you get to the earthier level, um, the spiritual reflection, it gets, as it were, dimmer and dimmer. Sabhatapati Swami taught a form of yoga, Janana yoga, which means knowledge yoga, which replaces the false knowledge of the ordinary self, isolated in his illusion that he is what he thinks he is. He's this ego. Uh, in other words, he's the product of sense impressions, sense impressions. This is important. Each sense impression manifests in the chakra. And as you work your way down the chakras, 12 in Sabapati Swami's system, you purify each one and you get down to the earthy level and then you shoot back up the spinal cord, which he identifies very importantly from Crowley's point of view with the linga, the linga. So the spine, which has the three channels of energy, left, right and center, goes straight back up to the, uh, the Brahma, Brahma Andra at the, at, at the top of the skull, the kita or crown, and then makes union again with the father or the, the 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 unspeakable brahma or however whatever phrase for the for the for the for the ultimate deity so man so man may discover through this system that he is of one substance with the father essentially but in his sense influenced system he's not aware of this now was this system existing in the second and third century in India or in Persia and passed on to the early Gnostics is a question which we have no definitive answer to. I suspect that Sabapati Swami uh, had already absorbed through his encounter with Christianity, Christian mysticism possibly, and with the Sufis. I think he'd already westernized um, what was the Janana tradition of of, of, of an advanced Hindu Kundalini yoga. So I, I suspect that he's in fact was producing a form of yoga, which he intuited would register with Western mysticism. And it's no accident that his book was taken up almost immediately by Colonel Olcott, uh, Blavatsky's sidekick, if I may use that phrase in India. And Crowley met Olcott uh, in South India when he first crosses from Ceylon after experiencing uh, his first Diana, uh, which is shattering experience in Ceylon, he goes over and he meets Olcott by accident on a station. It may be that Olcott turned him on to Sabapati Swami because I was very lucky to get in contact with the uh, Theosophical Library at Wheaton, Illinois, who sent me a, a fabulous reproduction, not reproduction, photographic version of the original book that was owned by Olcott of Sabapati Swami's teaching. 
And so I was able to work my way through that. And it still had all the muck and stuff on the book. Obviously, Olcott had carried it with him all around India. And uh, Crowley built it into his system. It's, it's terribly important because I think it does unite. It's the seed of the unity between the, the ancient Indian tradition of Kundalini Yoga with the Western tradition. I think perhaps Sabapati Swami preempted Crowley in that, in that union because there's this great urge in Indian thinkers in the 20, 19th and 20th century to make their thought systems appropriate to Western um, traditions, even if that meant literally borrowing Western traditions and turning them into Indian ones. And at the last part of the book, I show how a whole mythology that Crowley was a tantrist practicing tantra is generated out of, out of, in fact, the exact opposite, where somebody in India had taken Crowley's ideas and then redressed them up as if they were ancient Indian ones. And fascinating. And that's a, re a bit of a revelation that some people may find uh, surprising and or shocking. But um, the but whether whether there was a developed Kundalini theory in India that was exactly on a par with uh, the Gnostic uh, practices of Simon, attributed to Simon Magus or Basilides uh, in 2nd, 3rd century Alexandria and Syria, uh, it can't be completely sure of. I personally think, yes, I think the the basic thought processes uh, were there, and I think the the ancient Christian Gnostics simply took them on and Christianized them. There are so many parallels. The, the even the names of the uh, Valentinus's aeons of intelligence and the mother Sophia. You find this in in this tradition, and uh, it's fascinating because it means instead of the being rejecting the Gnostic system, which some have in, on the basis of its cosmology, i.e. that there's a, an ultimate mysterious God beyond the universe, uh, out of which the universe is created, run by the Demiurge, and then you get to planet Earth surrounded by um, demiurgical powers and, and, and archons. If you internalize that system into the human being as a biological spiritual entity, it all becomes so much more comprehensible and dealable with. You are yourself the universe. You are the microcosm. Uh, the ultimate truth is, is, as it were, at the top of your head. We are, in other words, at the, at the highest point of your aspiration, spiritual aspiration. And it cleanses the whole system from the head to the heart to the intestines, to your digestive system, down to the reproductive and excretal systems. In other words, it is a revolution of the whole man through the universal spirit. And we come to see that in spite of ourselves, as it were, our false self, which is the demiurge, by the way, uh, in spite of this false ego, we are at one with the creative power of the universe. And the cultivation of that is the salvation of man in this and any other century. Wow, that's really well said. So, so you would say, for example, the Gnostics. Thank you, Miguel. I've just saved the bloody world. <laughs> <laughs> How much do we owe you? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll accept checks. I don't mind. There you go. While they while they still exist, before digital currency takes over, we'll definitely pay you. So send me your, yeah. send me your love, Miguel. That's quite. <laughs> I always do, Tobias. <laughs> the heart chakra. So you would say. Even if some have said in the Gnostic system, you read like the the secret book of John, 
it no. has uh, an arc on for every body part and nerve. Those are exactly. like chakras, and the mind is where the aeons are. You've got it, and and I think obviously, I think what happens is in the great sort of uh, trash can of uh, that survived from the second third century in our, our limited knowledge of the so called Gnostics. Um, I, I'm sure there are a lot of groups who, who got garbled versions, just like you get today. You know, if you join this or that group of Indian swamis, you're going to get a different format. And very often it's simply that they've been misinformed or they're not as clear thinking as others. Look what John Lennon had to go through, you know, to get anywhere. I mean, first of all, he meets Maharishi, who has a simple mantra yoga, uh, but he, he presents it as if it's the answer, which, of course, it, it isn't. And then you get, he, he meets, um, I forget, uh, the Krishna consciousness founder through Allen Ginsberg and so on. And he gets the Krishna idea. George gets off on that. And, and afterwards, you know, he, he has a reaction and then he goes into psychology and then politics. And by the time of 1980, he's going back to mysticism again. And he and Yoko had already explored uh, the thought of Miller Repper and, and, uh, the guy who produced watches out of his sleeve or whatever you know uh, stuff it's exactly the same in the second century you had all these different groups claiming claiming to have the gnosis and there are a lot of people who are hungry for it um but you my own uh, search and and that of others you know you eventually get to you get down to the basics and that's what all my work's trying to do is get what what, what is what's the essence of this tradition and what's what can we use crowley went through that process uh and did his utter best with it, I think far better than anybody can imagine. Um, but his problem whenever he wrote was that he tended to presume that his reader had read everything he had. So a lot of things appear obscure. And with his own characteristic poetic humor, um, some very simple ideas he often presents as if they were uh, more mystical than they ought to be. Um, so the reason I go through Crowley, and I'm doing this, great bi biographical study which has now come to what four or five volumes is because i think crowley is of all the westerners who've encountered and gone on the great gnostic search of the 20th 21st century 20th century particularly he is he, is, he has the most uh, to offer us much more i believe than 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 uh, some of the more theosophically inclined teachers. I think Crowley's radicalism is more appealing, and I think his his synthesis is is more engaging, and I suspect will be longer lasting. Yeah, you you were talking about uh, the simplicity, but the complication of what he said because he'd read so much. I like in one part of your book you talk about how he simply said yoga is quote. How to stop thinking. Yes. And as you said, it goes against Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. And then in a great way, you bring up William Blake and his idea of the happy fly that doesn't know it exists. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the great thing about you, Miguel, is you actually read a book. I mean, it's evident. Oh, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have exactly. And, and I, when I wrote those things, I often think, is anyone going to? pick up on this because it's it's, <laughs> it's axiomatic and I'm, it delights me to hear that you have you're absolutely right the whole point of yogic practice is not some sort of uh, body exercise in the way it's taught you know in church halls around the world you know hatha yoga 
as if it's all about, you know, mindfulness and, you know, finding inner balance, you know, all this is, is a bit wet. What it's, it's, it's really about, look, you're talking about preparing your mind for divine inspiration. That's what it's about. And all the pacifying of the body is not to make you a, an athlete. <laughs> it's, it's intended to make, it's, it's intended to make your vessel quiet so you can listen and not even know you're listening. And, uh, it's a, it's a pacification of the sensual world, uh, which, which manifests in our brains as, as a lot of thought. Now, not all thought is to be discarded, uh, but most of it certainly is rubbish. Uh, we entertain our brains with the most extraordinary range of complete and utter nonsense all the time. And the discipline of yoga is, is, is saying, right, I've decided to take this situation on board and, Crowley's wonderful, um, concise compendium of initiated instruction of yoga is sit down, shut up, stop thinking, get out. That's it. I love it. <laughs> you don't need a book, you know, a hundred pages long with a girl in a leotard, uh, lifting a <laughs> left, left leg above, above a temple. Uh, to, to Jane Fondo, Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> You know, this is this is the narcissism, isn't it, of, of the of the Western culture? You allegedly you can't sell uh, the gnosis without some appeal to the ego and the vanity of the suburban housewife. Uh, it has to be dressed up in this thing about self improvement, and you're going to be so much happier. And and it, it, you know, that's the way. I suppose you want to sell it. That's one way to sell it. I think it's sold. Uh, they sell the soul of it with it, and people say, "I'm I'm really into yoga," you know. So, well, oh yeah, well, what have you got from it? Oh, it's great exercise. Well, oh, I see. So, it's <laughs> a form of athletics, is it? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, good luck in the in the Olympics. But what about the spiritual Olympics? You say, because that's what it's about. It's getting to the height of Olympus. That's the point of this, this exercise. Uh, is to is to go beyond the body. Man's problem has always been man, humankind, you know, male, female, obviously, uh, is has always been that we are trapped in our bodies and therefore subject to time, decay, death, and the agony and the angst of of the thinking person is, oh God, how long is this going to last? How do I deal with the pain? How do I deal with the relativity of my being? How I deal with 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 the fact that the world doesn't give a damn about my existence, you know, stand al stand alone in a in a modern airport and ask yourself, do I exist? As somebody treads on your foot, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, in in what sense are we alive? And what it, what 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 could we be? What should we be? Who are we? It's these old 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 questions. The book Alistair Crowley in India really goes into one man's engagement with a continent, not only on the spiritual level, which we've discussed, but also very much on the physical. He he, he led the first uh, – he didn't lead. He, he was co-leader of the first uh, uh, full assault on K2, the second highest mountain in the world, in a period when most of people's idea of mountain climbing was a sort of a Sunday afternoon walk. And uh, and then he did Kanchenjunga. So these these are epic epic struggles of exploration and endurance, and they've never been, in my opinion, properly reported. And I was able to get a fantastic photographic record, and uh, we see now that Crowley wasn't just 
know, somebody wrote on a website recently or something about um, people extracting blood, uh, water from the Crowley stone, i.e. that people are exploiting Crowley. Um, that, that would presume that the writer of that knew everything about Crowley. The point of my biographical uh, exercises to show that we don't know nearly enough about who he was and what he did and that his reputation has obscured one of the great Gnostic epic stories of, of history. That's, that's, that's my take on it. We have come towards the end of the interview. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company yet again on uh, Crowley's Odyssey across the world, and hopefully it's an odyssey across human consciousness at the same time. Thanks, Vance. Absolutely. Tobias, so great to hear you again and uh, be here in the interview with you, and I really appreciate all that you said and understand about how mankind needs to re-embrace uh, his uh, cosmic uh, identity because we've been lost in scientism so um, yes that's right. yeah, good lost, luck lost in space is the, the old program <laughs> <laughs> danger will robinson danger will robinson. that's right <laughs> very well, good thanks yeah yeah wonderful and so tobias i guess you said you're not going to tell us uh your next book on crowley but anything else on the works the audience should know about yeah my neck my next book I mean, they haven't got to this one yet, but I, my, but I have written what will be the next book next year, and it's about the origins of science and religion. And it's called The Lost Pillars of Enoch. Oh, wow, that sounds good, and kind of what we're talking about, what Ben's talking much, about scientists. <laughs> very much yeah. so. It's, it's this, whole, it's this whole, as it were, a folk memory of when religion and science were one, uh, and how that image uh, is projected through time, especially after the Hermetic books were appeared in the second, first, second centuries. And uh, I take that whole thing as a metaphor for the development of, of it, it, it is like the, the pillar in 2001, A Space Odyssey. What sets us on this march and where are we going? So it's, 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 it's really my, my Toby testament. I think, I, you know, I, I th that's how I thought about it when I was writing it. And it's been hugely informed by amazing discoveries about the, the Book of Enoch, which I think was the hottest, hottest text in the first century, and without which there would be no Christianity and we wouldn't be talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jesus quotes it, so it was important. Yeah, it's fundamental. It fundamental and fundamental to the Gnostic explosion. Exactly. Very much so with the Neville. Well, we certainly look forward to that work as always and your tireless work and making sure the Gnosis doesn't get forgotten. So we do appreciate and uh, good luck with your book, Alistair Crowley in India. And we look forward to the next time, Tobias. Thank you, Miguel. You're doing great work. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Tobias Churton. It's raining gnosis. Hallelujah. In our second part, Tobias shares about Crowley's overall contribution to Western esoterica, as well as the evolution of Crowley's politics. This leads to Tobias granting his views on today's politics and how to heal a divided Western culture. Hint, we get Jungian on your ass. 
we revisit Hinduism and talk about Kali and other Eastern deities. We flip things around and talk about how Western mysticism has influenced Eastern religions, which of course it has. We lighten up and Tobias goes on about his favorite Gnostic thing movies, television, and even rock albums. You'll love it. And we cover much, much more. So please become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the complete heretical enchilada. Let's keep growing this red pill cafeteria. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you get your spirit back. A mere $6.99 a lunar cycle with many benefits. And some of these invite you to become part of a growing Gnostic community. You get the same benefits at Patreon, but you can pledge per content what you want. Beyond full episodes, you'll get full access to our new Discord channel and the archives with more than 450 episodes with the best and brightest in Gnosticism, Western esoteric, and free thought. And full episodes of my vlog, The Abraxas Brief. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group where I stream the Abraxas Brief live and answer questions. And we have some truly intriguing conversations from an amazing community that includes past guests like Nicholas Laos, Robert Price, Tim Freak, Lawrence Gallian, Edward Pandemonium, and others. And I'm always there to address your issues and give you the latest on Gnostic news around the universe. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. You can assist too by buying me books like Voices of Gnosticism, Other Voices of Gnosticism, Heretic or Stargazer. So please support this alternative media you won't find anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. This is where you find your own personal Jesus and your own personal Assassin's Creed. This is where you find out who you really are and what reality is not. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Hello and goodbye as always. <laughs>